Welcome to the official podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel Indy West. Our desire is to make authentic disciples of Christ who worship Him, walk with Him, and work for Him. You can find more information about Harvest by visiting our website at www.harvestindywest.org or by downloading our app from your app store. We pray today's podcast will encourage your pursuit of Jesus Christ. Just open your copy of God's Word to Matthew 17 and 18. Matthew 17 and 18. Uh, today, uh, we're talking about uh, the gospel in, the gospel in. And uh, just as you're turning there, a big thank you to Pastor Nate for leading and feeding you so well last Sunday in God's Word. Uh, Matthew 16, Jesus posed the question uh, to those closest to him, so who do you say that I am? And uh, one's personal response to that question carries grand life and eternal life ramifications, even just as we sang about, and a big thank you to Pastor Nate. By the way, what a team we have here. Stunning thing. Well, we're covering a lot of terrain in Scripture today. Uh, two chapters. Uh, in fact, that is often the way that you read your Bible uh, throughout the week. Uh, we take in kind of chunks like that, especially with the longer narrative texts. Um, and sometimes we can look at these texts and they seem so disjointed. They seem like it's just a chronological telling of, but that's really not what Matthew's objective is. He's not so much concerned about a chronological telling is there is a movement of what he's trying to do. He's presenting an argument, if you will. Um, but let me say this. As you look at your Bibles now and you see these two chapters, there's a lot of signs and billboards. Be careful of them. Well, what am I talking about? Let me kind of uh, bring it this way. Sunday afternoon, August 5th of this last year, uh, Karen and I stepped into our truck with our camper attached to it, and we were facing west, and we began a journey west. Um, we were so blessed by you to have a sabbatical break to reflect and uh, to uh, recharge and to rest. And our journey uh, began in the terrain of the Midwest, the wonderful, glorious terrain of the Midwest, which I actually love. Um, trees and farmland, but then we began to notice that that began to shift. It moved into kind of the rolling horizon, extending terrain of the fields of the central states. Uh, then it moved into the majestic, evergreen-smelling, Rocky Mountain-high mountains. It's glorious. And then, after that, it actually went into this, like, other planetary thing with the salt beds of Utah, if you've been through there. And then that transitioned into the dry, cactus-laden desert terrains of northern Nevada. Um, and, and then that moved into the very cool uh, um, mountains of northern California that just welcomed you with, you made it. Had we continued, we actually would have been greeted by the terrain of the Pacific Ocean. We didn't go that far. Um, vastly diverse terrain. And if you would take pictures of each of them on our own, it would kind of be like none of them all fit together. There's just no way all of that works together. But while you're driving, it just moves from one into the other into the next. 
However, one of the things we noticed on the travel was signs and billboards, while helpful, kind of oftentimes got in the way of your eyes staying on the terrain of it. In fact, we saw all kinds of signs and billboards. We saw eat here billboards. We saw gas here billboards. We saw gamble here billboards. We saw uh, state signs and city signs and mile signs, and they were all there and they were helpful at times, but again, they got in the way at seeing the terrain and the movement if you weren't careful with it. I wanna say this, the terrain across the thousands of miles that we covered in the US is a beautiful movement of like a choreographed painter's paintbrush. It's just moving from one to the next to the next. And it all tells a whole story if you see it. When we look at these couple chapters, I just want for us to know, I think there is this marvelous movement of the divine choreographed painting of the divine painter. And we're going to see this, and oh, God, help me. I hope you see it, because I'm really excited about it. Okay, I'm really excited about what we have today. So let me say this. As your tour guide, don't get stuck on all the headings and the chapter breaks. Go with the flow with me. Let's see the terrain that we have here. Don't miss the terrain. So we're in Matthew 17 and 18. Uh, we're within a few months, if not a month, of the cross. That kind of even puts some perspective on what's taking place here. As Pastor Nate said last Sunday, uh, let's be hungry to be around Jesus, and we get to be around Jesus right now in his word. So let's be hungry to be around him. And let's watch him do what I have up on the screens. Let's watch him do kingdom of heaven, li heaven living in a kingdom of earth setting. Kingdom of heaven living in a kingdom of earth setting. Oh, and by the way, isn't that what you and I, as followers of Christ, are doing today? We're to be people that are doing kingdom of heaven living in a kingdom of earth setting. So we have a lot to learn here. And uh, actually, let's begin with his kingdom, uh, our kingdom. Uh, well, let's begin with his kingdom first, verses 1 through 8, chapter 17. And after six days... Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, Jesus' brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. The word in the Greek for transfigured is, uh, how do you say this in kind of a verb format? He was like metamorphosized. It's like metamorphosis took place. He was uh, metamorphosized before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. Oh, what were they talking about, those three? Like, oh man, I've missed you. Good to see you. Was, I, 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 okay. Verse 4. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. <laughs> it's just so wooden sounding, isn't it? I don't think it was that wooden. It's like, Lord, it is awesome that we are here. And Peter goes on, love this dude. If you wish, Lord, I will make three tents. I will make three tabernacles here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And he was still speaking when it's kind of like, Peter, we need to silent you down here. 
He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the clouds said, can you imagine this? This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. By the way, listen to him in the context of Moses and Elijah standing there. Listen to him. In the context of the one who wrote the Pentateuch, and in the context it was one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. And here, the Father, listen to him, Jesus, even in that context. Listen to him. I'm finding where I'm at. Verse 6. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw, this is a wonderful statement, by the way, they saw no one but Jesus only. Wow. Here, uh, Peter, James, and John, they get what I'm calling a divine glimpse. A divine glimpse. Um, And this is clearly an altogether different kingdom world that they're getting a glimpse into. A few things I think here to learn from this, even if I can just put it on the table, you can consider it more because we, with all the text we have to cover today, we can't dive in too deeply. Here's, a, here's one. Our kingdom world is not the only kingdom world. Our kingdom world is not the only kingdom world. Do you know that? Hey, by the way, things going on at work and everything taking place, this kingdom is not the only kingdom that there is going on. Not the only kingdom world. By the way, there's an afterlife. Moses and Elijah are there. And if I have my time periods right, uh, Moses and Elijah died before the New Testament. And yet they are here. There is an afterlife. And by the way, there is even this sense of there is relationship in the afterlife. They're talking. I'm serious. I so want to be knowing what those three were talking about. I don't know. Also, in this whole setting, I think very important, Jesus is uniquely set apart in this other life realm. He is uniquely set apart. He's unveiled. It points only to him as being the one who radiates in splendor of his divine glory. And here it's even while he's in the presence of Moses and Elijah, hear this voice in verse 5, obviously God the Father designates a unique sonship about Jesus. Something is unique about Jesus, and then it even adds an exclamation point, if you will, by it says, listen to him. Listen to him, to the disciples. Another thing we can even see here is this other kingdom realm, it turns those of our kingdom realm inside out and face down. Uh, This is so the case that we see through Scripture. It happens with Isaiah. It happens with Saul when when the Lord appears after his resurrection and ascension, puts him face down. It happens in Revelation 1 with the Apostle John, who's here, by the way, in this one, and he's face down in it. Also, I think here there's the fact that Moses and Elijah here, there's this idea, even in this context, that there's a divine plan in place. There's a divine plan in place. That's encouraging. Here, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are together. That right there is like three statements of a divine plan. Listen, friends, God knows where this is going, and he's moving it along. 
and, and it's there, and you have Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. There is a divine plan. Let's keep reading verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, got the picture, they've been up on the mountain. By the way, chapter 16, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. Jesus takes them up on this mountain. We don't quite know exactly where it is, but he takes them up on this mountain. And now they're coming down. As they're coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, obviously that's the three, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. By the way, there's another statement. Raised from the dead. Like, you're going to die. Yeah, he goes on, and the disciples ask him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Verse 11, he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about Jesus. What in the world is he talking about? Let me just kind of put on the table two quotes from two people smarter than myself. One of them is David Platt. He says this, Jesus had to help the disciples understand that the kingdom of God was not being ushered in the way they thought that it would be. They expected a messianic forerunner and then a Messiah who would together usher in a kingdom on this earth marked by triumph and power. However, God's kingdom was coming in a different way. The disciples were being prepared for the reality that Jesus' ministry of redemption would be accomplished through his suffering and his death. And then Leon Morris says, for whatever reason, they now understood that the prophecy about Elijah had its fulfillment in John the Baptist and that that great man's treatment at the hands of the authorities set the pattern that would in due course receive further fulfillment in Jesus. Friends, there's so many cool things here that we could talk about, but we're covering a lot of terrain, so I just want to kind of say, we're given a glimpse of an other world here. Be assured, this is not the only place, this is not the only thing that's going on, is what's in our lives. There's a something otherworldly going on, and there's a plan that God has in place. And let me say it this way, those two worlds are colliding in the text. The kingdom of heaven world and the kingdom of earth world are colliding and coming together. And God is doing something here. God has stepped onto this earth and something's about to take place. Now, from here through the end of chapter 18, there's a lot of signs and billboards in your Bible. Don't let them distract you. Let's stay on task. And I want to see here, something flows. In fact, I'm going to kind of put it together this way. Four fundamental factors for us to live serious about. Four men, fundamental factors for us to live serious about. The first one is this. Kingdom of heaven people live serious about faith. Live serious about faith. Let me pick up verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son. By the way, that sounds so much like the Canaanite woman 
situation in chapter 15 that Nate took you through. Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered. Listen, in light of the transfiguration that just took place, now hear this. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? By the way, now might you see how that makes sense? I mean, I was just with Moses and Elijah. <laughs> and, and here I am back, and, and we got a situation taking place, and there is this aspect of, of kind of the heavenlies colliding with the earthly, and the heavenly kind of like going, ah! Oh! And then he goes on, how long am I to bear with you? <laughs> Bring him here to me. Verse 18, and Jesus rebuked the demon. I wonder what that looked like. I don't know, but that had to be cool. Did he say something, or was it like mind to mind? <laughs> and Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. And then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And that's a great question. I think I would be in the same situation because Jesus had given them authority to be able to do that. And they're like, why couldn't we do this? Listen to his answer, verse 20. He said to them, because of your, what? Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there. And it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. Okay. One, do you get the sense that Jesus is serious about faith? I think we do in this text. It causes me to ask the question, am I? Are you? Seriously. He uses his little term, little faith. It carries the idea of a poverty of faith. I might say in light of him making the illustration of uh, to a mustard seed, uh, to them was a very tiny seed, uh, maybe it's like you have microscopic faith. But, but literally it carries this idea of a poverty of faith. Uh, listen, faith that is growing and maturing is to be an attribute, is to be a characteristic of someone that's in Christ. Growing in it, maturing in it. Uh, Mark chapter 4, the fourth soil is pictured as receiving Christ and the soil, we are the soil, putting ourselves into it. And the picture is as Christ grows out as he roots himself further into us. It's to be growing and maturing. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, uh, Paul can't address them as spiritual, but he can, says that I can only address you as people of the flesh as infants in Jesus. And it's not supposed to be that way. Colossians 2, 6 and 7, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, rooted and strengthened and upbuilt in him. It's not just coming to Christ, but it's coming to Christ and then growing in Christ and maturing in Christ. 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn infants who crave spiritual milk, so you grow in him. And then Revelation 3, uh, Jesus to the church of Laodicea, you are neither hot nor cold. You are lukewarm. The idea, not that. There is to be something that is, our faith is growing. Here's a definition of faith. Faith is believing the word of God and acting upon it no matter how I feel, knowing that God promises a good result. Faith 
is believing the word of God and acting upon it, no matter how I feel, knowing that God promises a good result. Oh, by the way, the good result, we could say, knowing that God promises a God-glorifying, faith-working, maturing work in me. Not I get what I want. Whenever I think of this definition, man, I'm like Jesus in Gethsemane. Oh, Father, I don't want to do this right now. Oh, but not my will, yours. Faith is believing the word of God and acting upon it no matter how I feel, knowing that God promises a God-glorifying, faith-working result. And by the way, all of this is following Peter. Who do you say that I am? All of this is following them seeing this glorification scene of the transfiguration. And then it comes, moves right into the discussion of faith. I want to tell you, that makes so much sense. Who do you say that I am? You are the Messiah. Okay, let me show you a little bit of my glory. Okay, I just got a sight of your glory. Okay, now I want to press into you about faith in me, the glorified one, who you say is the Christ. He's moving this. I think this is just Matthew, by the work of the Spirit of God, is just putting together this movement of flow of what's taking place. By the way, this is not a directive for you and I to go around rearranging the geography. This doesn't mean that it's like Jesus says, you know what, you can go around and do your avenger faith. And do anything you want. That's not what it's talking about. This is an illustration. Back in that day, mountains were viewed as rooted in the earth. This is an illustration of what's taking place. He's not asking us to rearrange geography. He's asking us to see him big. It's asking us to trust in him. By the way, Mark chapter 9 relates the same event. And in Mark chapter 9, it says, Jesus says, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Think of that. This is the kind of faith that Jesus is talking about. Prayer kind of faith. The kind of faith that, that is face down. Friends, faith matters. If we have faith in nothing, what's next after that? Let's go to the John MacArthur quote quote from John MacArthur talking about this text. When they are healthy and have the necessities of life, their faith is great and strong. When they are in need, their faith is small and gives way to doubt. Great faith trusts God. And when there is nothing in the cupboard to eat, no money to buy food, Great faith trusts in God when health is gone. Work is gone. Reputation is gone. Family is gone. Great faith trusts God while the windstorm is still howling and persecution continues. Faith is trusting in a sovereign, sufficient words and the work and the power and the plan of God. That's what faith is. 
there is a purpose, there is a plan, there is a movement, there is a savior. He has come. Verse 22, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. He will be raised on the third day, and they were greatly distressed. By the way, we are going to be talking about that text, almost similar to that text on Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday is something to celebrate because of that. Friends, that's what our faith is grounded in. The work of Christ. The work of Christ has conquered sin, has conquered death work of Christ is available to anyone who would receive him. The promise and the hope is there, and it's real. Because this is not it. This is not all there is. Thank God. Think about this now. If we're to be serious about faith, that requires a sense of having to be serious about, secondly, humility. Faith requires humility. Let's see this flow. Verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? I love that. And whom do, you, whom do kings of the earth take a toll or tax from their sons or from others. And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open, when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Do you realize what it took to get that fish and a shekel all together and in the same spot? And do you, can you imagine that the Lord knows exactly where that fish with that shekel is going to be on the whole Sea of Galilee, and he's going to connect the hook with the fish with the shekel? And yes, I believe this is true and happened. Why not? God can move a fish. God can move a shekel. God can connect a fish with a shekel to a hook. Yes, he's that big. He's that big. You guys are crazy. No, we're not. Our God is crazy. That's what's so cool about it. Verse 6, take the, uh, wherever I'm at. Uh, where was I at? 27, thank you, 6, 27. Uh, then, um, yeah, uh, take that, <laughs> give it to them, and for yourself. <laughs> Listen, what's going on here at the core of this, the movement, I want for you to understand. I want all this drama to leave right now. Uh, okay, I want for you to understand what's going on. It's Jesus, and they're coming into this town. They're coming into this town. They ask for this drachma tax. It goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 30, where they said, collect a half of a shekel. Uh, uh, 
annually to pay for the, to help support the tabernacle. And then later in the Old Testament, the same kind of thing continued on. And, and here we see that happening again. In this day, it was, it was a, all male, 20 to 50 years old, had to pay a shekel that would, that would go to the, to the care of the temple with what's going on. This is not like a colliding like they're mad. This is just kind of the way life worked. And so they're asking, hey, is, was, has your, have you paid your tax at this point in time? And in this whole time, how does humility fit into this? Because do you see that there are times that Jesus was willing to offend people? And there are times that he was not. And this is one of these times he's not willing to offend them. And it's like, you know what? Got to pay a shekel? Pay it. Let's do it. In fact, let's do it in the kind of a way that actually, because as the son, let's do it in the kind of a way that shows that it actually isn't coming for me because I'm the son of the king and you are part of the family of the king. So we're going to go out in the lake and get the coin. But Carson sums it up this way. He says, the point is that just as royal sons are exempt from the taxes imposed by their fathers, so too Jesus is exempt from the tax imposed by his father. In other words, Jesus acknowledges the temple tax to be an obligation to God, but since he is uniquely God's son, therefore he is exempt. You catching it? Exempt though he is, Jesus will, will pay the tax so as not to offend. Jesus is establishing a pattern of, pattern of humility for his followers. It's so interesting. Jesus has totally offended the Pharisees. But then he comes along to the regular people. Might I say it this way? To the soil number one people who are hard-hearted to him, he doesn't have a problem pushing in and offending. In a loving way, actually. But when it comes to this, where those who have not yet uh, really had the opportunity to understand and to know, he takes extra effort not to offend them. Friends, this should be part of a ministry reality. Understanding who we are around, who we are ministering to, who we are loving on. And sometimes there are some, humility understands the times when there are people that we need to like stand bold and stand strong. And humility shows up at the same time in the kind of ways to where it's like, no, we're just not going to offend that. This one, this one is not worth the battle over. Just go get it from the fish. <laughs> so cool. Humility. By the way, it continues, chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? <laughs> uh, not humble? Would we agree? Verse 2, and calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Notice, Jesus takes their kingdom of earth question, like, hey, Jesus, like, who's going to be the greatest among us? Is that not like an earthly question? Is that not what happens even when we, like, go back to, I've never been to one, what do you call that after graduation and, and late years later? A reunion, thank you. When you go back to a reunion and, like, everybody's sizing it up, I've never been to one yet. I don't want to go. But that's what happens. Everybody's like, where are we in the mix of things? Who's at the top of the ladder? I'm going to rent a Rolls Royce just to try and show off, or I don't know what people do. But that's what so often goes on in these kinds of times. And yet here, even the disciples are thinking, now I will say this, they're thinking, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's a little bit of spiritual. I'm trying to be kind to them. 
And yet Jesus takes a, a kingdom of earth question and turns it into a kingdom of heaven uh, conversation. By the way, that's what humble people do. They take questions and they take their, their, their discussions and they take it to, oh yeah, chapter 17, verse 5, listen to him. Humble people take their questions to the Lord and his word. Third, serious about sin people. Serious about faith people are serious about humility people who are serious about their sin people. Know this, if we're to be humble, we need to understand our sinfulness. By the way, it starts with our own sin. Verse 5 through 9, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me, to believe, I'm sorry, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. There's one to have a lunch conversation. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Friends, serious about sin. That is serious about sin. Hey, listen, cut it off tear it out, throw it away. It's Colossians chapter 3. Kill it. By the way, in Colossians chapter 3, oftentimes that's kind of viewed like, I should never experience sin again. I need to put it to death so it never shows itself again. No, no. Colossians 3 is giving this idea of my mindset towards sin is every time it shows, I approach it with the, with the, with the passion to kill it. Come on, man, go to war right now. You want me to do that? You want me to speak that? You want me to think that? You want me to go there that? What? No. I'm going to kill it. Ugh. That's why we have uh, Ephesians, uh, the, 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 the armor of God. We go to war. Sin is war. And here it's in our own lives. It's this idea of serious about our sins. Listen, friends, it is easy to get lazy about sin, isn't it? And yet God wants us to be serious about it and, and, and go after it. By the way, humble people go after their own sin. And by the way, humble people who go after their sin also understand the importance of the whole of sin. Quickly, let me read this. Verses 10 through 20. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven uh, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine in the mount, on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it, more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. By the way, do you, do you see? Listen, he's just talking about, listen, sin is so important. That do not cause someone to fall. And yet in that, it's like sin is such a deal that even if one goes away, I love that one enough that I'll go after them. Oh, and by the way, Jesus just isn't supposed to be the only one that goes after them, but God's people are supposed to be the ones that goes after after each other humbly 
Keep reading. Okay, I will. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother, but if he listens not, uh, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the ecclesia. And if he refuses to listen even to the ecclesia, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. By the way, how would you treat a Gentile and a tax collector? You want them to know Christ. You don't ever want to never have anything to do with them again. You want them to come to know Christ. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth should be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they ask, it will be done for them by the will of Father. For two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Oh, by the way, do you see the context of those last verses there? Let me just say this. I'll try quickly and close. I got a couple more, but... If we view sin as really important... And humble people who take their faith seriously see sin as important. And we go after our sin. We get the log out of our eye before we get the speck out of others' eye. We take our sin more seriously than other sin. We're harder on our sin, I should say. We're harder on our sin than we are on everybody else's. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to be hard on everyone else's sin? Doesn't everybody annoy you? Oh, but we're so. So in it, here we are, we're serious about our sin. What does that mean then? God has a family of people where sin is important. By the way, do you realize that your sin matters in this whole? And by the way, we're not to be going around like looking like, who's sinning because we want to get you. And once we see you sin, we are like on you and crushing you. That is not at all the whole sense of the context of the movement. Serious about faith people are humble people who see their own sin seriously, who also, as a result of that, see sin seriously unto you and the whole. Oh, my word, I don't want you, brother or sister, falling away from Christ and running away from Christ. And what's supposed to happen is, is if there's something that goes on, we're supposed to get with that person. By the way, you and yourself, not Facebook, not Twitter, We have more conversation going on about sin without ever talking to the person. And we're to go to them, not to crush them. We're to go, we love you out of humbleness and our faith is serious and we love you and oh, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm concerned, brother, sister. I'm concerned, is this sin? And let's talk, let's talk. And if, and if that doesn't, it still seems to be a sin issue. Maybe it's like, oh, I didn't understand. I, I'd had it all wrong. And then if that's the case, I go and I grab two others who have maturity and who have uh, an ability and it's sit down, help, let's help because we're loving this in this whole uh, four humble people together now who take their sins seriously and God's people seriously and we sit down and we interact together in it and then it's oh Lord uh, come and if that person is showing no sign of sensitivity to sin or repentance if there's no humbleness if there's no serious about sin if there's no serious about faith then there comes this thing we, we bring the church and the ecclesia oh, there's a whole conversation about that but then there's other people who come in and are involved, that circle of influence around, and they speak in, and then it's kind of this thing of, ultimately it does, it comes to excommunication type of thing, where if that's a person who is like, you're claiming to be a believer, but I'm telling you, we are seeing no sign of you being a believer in Christ, and we call you to repent, and we're going to love you, we have to love you now like a tax collector. 
And that has happened here over the years. And oftentimes, it's the kind of thing to where this circle, how it is. We don't do that on Sunday mornings in the, in the thing of it. And I don't have the time to talk about that. But I want to say thank you to so many people who over the years have been involved in doing that. This should be part of who we are as a people. And by the way, this week I'm thinking, this should also bring a sensitivity to us that we should be the kind of people, have we ever thought, have I ever thought of going to other people and going, do you see sin in me that you would like to talk with me about that I need to know that I'm missing? <laughs> now there's a thought. I'm sorry to say, there's a thought I just thought this week. But oftentimes what's going on is we're not humble. And we're not really that serious about our sin. Because we want to hide it and conceal it. And we want to play a game with each other. And can I just say, let's stop it. Let's even invite each other's voice into our lives. Hey, if you ever see in me, please come. Let's be biblical. Because there's grace, and there's love and repentance, together, together. And lastly, what a perfect way to finish off the whole text, serious about forgiveness. Does that not make sense? Do, do you see this? I think this is so awesome, guys. Serious about faith, people, are serious about humility, who are serious about their sin, who are then serious about forgiveness. Let's read the end of the passage. Verse 21, then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? Now that's a great question and fitting with the context of what's just happened. And I forgive him as many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but I say 77 times. Because of time, I'm going to stop there. Like that's a lot of times. Loved ones, sometimes we can be some of the most hard people on other people. We should be forgiving people who are humble about our own sin. Oh my word, how our Savior offers forgiveness again and again and again and again and again and again to my and your sin. And then we get stingy with others? That's a problem. Serious about forgiveness. Kingdom of heaven living and a kingdom of earth setting is about people that are serious about their faith, serious about humility, serious about sin, and serious about forgiveness. Now, this is the point where pastors have a way of finishing it and leaving you guilted like crazy. And you leave here and you go home and you go, you know what? He's right. I stink. It's really easy to do that as a preacher. But I think I and we have been learning something over the last year and I want to finish it this way. Listen to some passages. Have you
Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come by and eat. Incline your ear. Come to me here that your soul may live. Luke 10. Martha, 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 you're anxious and you're troubled about so many things. But only one thing is necessary. Martha, sit down and just be with me. John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he, she is the one that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In Matthew 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Listen, here's here's how we can do it. I want to just take a couple minutes, just a couple minutes, and then Pastor Nick is going to close this out. Just a couple minutes, just some time quiet. And some time to do this. Lord, I come to you because I'm serious about my faith. Lord, I come to you because I'm serious about humility. Lord, I come to you because I'm serious about my sin. Lord, I come to you because I'm serious about forgiveness. And God, I thirst for you and I need your help to be serious about all of these things. Thirsty for faith people, where do they go? They go to the Savior. Thirsty for humility, people. Where do we go? We need to come to the Savior. Thirsty for, uh, for the need to be serious about our sin. We need to just come to the Lord. And thirsty for forgiveness. Oh, God, help me to forgive. And so instead of guilting you, I want to call us to come to the feet of the one who loves thirsty people. And he will give rest. So let's do that now. What is it for you? What is it for you that you need to be coming to him as a thirsty soul?